the end of John's Gospel, there's a funny little sentence that suggests that the world could not contain the books that could be written about the many things which Jesus did. I've always taken that as a bit of an exaggeration, but what if it's not? What if we've misunderstood what John was trying to say? Welcome to episode 27, The Restoration of Peter, part two. Well, welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. This is Greg Hall, and this episode is a continuation of the conversation we began in the last episode. It's a conversation I had with one of my seminary professors, Dr. Warren Gage. I invited Dr. Gage to help us cover the last chapter in the book of John, and like any good Bible professor, he gave me more information than I expected. So in just a little bit, we'll be welcoming Dr. Gage back to the podcast. But before we start the interview, I'd like to mention again the new website, watermarkgospel.com, that Dr. Gage has recently launched, where he is sharing content using professionally animated short videos. The videos on the website are geared to show how one can see the story of Jesus like a watermark in every major story in the Bible. Well, I'll just let Dr. Gage tell you a little bit about the Watermark Gospel videos in his own words. We're basically trying to re-engineer the Emmaus Road. I've got about 60 of them from the from Moses and all the prophets that I'm kind of thinking were probably the preeminent part of the discussion. And we're trying to show that emblematically you can see the crucifixion scene. They each have a crucifixion scene and a resurrection scene. And it's a new way of approaching the text that I'm finding is opening up a lot of scriptures that I totally misunderstood, but I'd missed that sequence. And that sequence is altogether important. But if we can do that, that's a significant help, I think, because we're demonstrating what Christ said is authentic, but it's also opening up a lot of texts that heretofore have been kind of mystifying. You heard Dr. Gage mention that they are trying to recreate the discussion that Jesus had with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's a story found in Luke chapter 24, where the resurrected Jesus, on a seven-mile walk, explained from the Old Testament scriptures that the Christ would have to do several things. Number one, he would have to suffer. He would, two, rise again from the dead. Number three, that that would happen on the third day. And number four, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to all the nations. Those four items are found specifically in Luke 24, 46. And Dr. Gage has identified about 60 Old Testament stories that fit that formula. And it's likely those stories that Jesus expounded upon during his seven-mile walk that day. Well, if that piqued your interest at all, I'll put some links in the show notes to some of the short videos that they've already launched. In today's episode, we continue the theme of restoration. Peter, along with the other disciples, slept through their prayer time in the garden, and then Peter was rebuked for attempting to kill the high priest's servant, and then he denied knowing Jesus three separate times. John chapter 21 is all about the restoration of Peter and the disciples to prepare them for the ministry to which Jesus was calling. And this week, you'll see the two sides of Dr. Gage. To be sure, he's a scholar. You'll be reminded of that in the first half of the episode. But he also has a pastoral heart. And while he cares about the mastery of the content, 
He's most concerned that the scriptures make a difference in people's everyday lives. So, without any further delay, let's pick up where we left off last week in John 21, verse 9, and listen to Dr. Warren Gage unpack the end of the gospel. When they got out on the land, they saw the charcoal fire already laid out and the fish on it and the bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have caught now. So Simon Peter went up and drew the, to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. So Jesus came and took the bread. I, I think that they, they knew it was the Lord. They'd actually seen him. Remember the disciples had including Thomas, who only saw him once. The other disciples saw him twice, at least, we know. I think that they know it's the Lord, but no, none of them say anything because they don't know why he's there at that moment. You know, he's clearly reenacting their original call. He's basically recommissioning them like he had in the beginning, and they haven't quite put that together again. That's not what they expected. I think they kind of expected some kind of glorified manifestation, but he appears very humbly to them. He, he appears bre- making breakfast for them. I think that's altogether unexpected for the risen Christ. To me, all of this rings very true. It's authentic to Christ and his humility, and it's authentic to the disciples in their, in their perplexity. So he says, uh, none of them dared ask him, who are you? They knew who it was. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. So the miracle of uh, Tabka, which happened close by, was the multiplication of the fish and the bread. And so... Here is that same kind of a, that was the feeding of the uh, 5,000. They're being reminded of his miraculous creating out of nothing that meal for so many that was sufficient to precision for them. He took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. And this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples. After he was raised from the dead, three is always the number of repentance for Peter. You remember the three appearances of the vision, the sheep that was lowered down from heaven that finally rebuked him into his acknowledgement that God could call the Gentiles clean when they had been unclean to him. The three uh, words of folly at the time when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, Peter speaks three words of folly at the transfiguration, three words of folly, let us make three tabernacles for you and Moses and Elijah. Everything with Peter is three. There were three seasons of prayer. He slept and this sets that pattern out in his life, I think. He's like the rest of us. He's kind of numbskull, I guess we say. Takes, takes a lot to get through. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, I think that that's interesting because we don't know that Peter has been personally addressed yet. And I kind of doubt that he had. But there were three names of Peter that Jesus could have called him. And that, too, is significant, I think. And I think Peter was wondering, what is he going to call me? Is he going to call me Cephas or, you know, Peter the rock? Well, he certainly hadn't shown himself to be a rock. He'd crumbled. So he didn't really deserve that name. Uh, He will after Pentecost when he stands like the rock of Gibraltar before the Jews on Pentecost. But we're before that now. So that will come later. But that's after the spirit will fall upon him and after he's restored. But uh, will he call him? Cephas? Probably not. 
will he call him Simon, son of Jonas, which is his, that's his given name. But Jesus had changed his name to Cephas. So that was the name of his original calling. But Jesus had given him a third name, and that was Satan itself. Remember, get thee behind me, Satan. So I think he's turning it over in his mind. He probably feels like he deserves to be called Satan, being an implement of Satan. But what happens is Jesus, when he finally speaks to him, he says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. And he calls him by that kind of original name. So it's a, you know, that's part of this beginning again. He says, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, feed my lambs. And it will become sheep, but he begins with the lambs. It's like you begin with the children, I think, is the, the you know, you give dignity to the first here, and it'd be the, the children, and then also then to the, their more adult counterparts. Tend my lambs. And that sounds like uh, Isaiah 40, you know, he will come like a shepherd, you know, with the ewes in his bosom carrying them. So he's calling them to be like he is and to tend the lambs, but he's tending his lambs. He'd called the disciples his little flock in Luke. And so now you see the gentleness of his own uh, treatment of them. Uh, you tend the lambs, you carry them when they've been injured or wounded. He's basically doing that very thing. He's the, Peter himself calls himself a shepherd because he's restored, but he talks about Christ as the chief shepherd. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. Then he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The third time breaks his heart because that's the pattern. He's already detected the pattern. And he had denied him three times. And so the third time reminds him again of his denial. Now, instead of oaths and curses, it's, you know, it's tears. He's really, he's grieved, he's broken. He said, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Now, that's his public restoration, but it's a restoration of the others that were with him in the boat. He had called them away from their nets, and they were trying to go back to their nets. And he'd called them away from that because... Their calling is much higher, much nobler. So he's going to use the repentance of Peter as the evidence of his restoration. This would have been regarded as an unforgivable sin, the denials, but Jesus forgives it, and he makes it the ground of his restoration. So Peter's title to rule is basically his, the authenticity of his repentance. And then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, John tells us, now he said this signifying by what death he would glorify God. And that's been taken to represent the, the fact that Peter was, according to tradition, crucified upside down by his own request and his sense of unworthiness to die like the Savior so he has to be crucified upside down, which is granted to him. They'll bring you where you do not wish to go. He said, signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, said to him, follow me, which is the call again to, you know, leave the nets and become fishers of men. So Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is it, the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? 
And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. That picks up on the fact that Jesus will come around 65 AD. He will appear to John on Patmos, 60 to 65, whenever, whenever John is in that exile, that Roman exile on Patmos. And that's when he will commission him to write the twin books of John and Revelation, what you've seen, the visions he talks about, write in a book. So he will see him again in the flesh on the earth, John will, if I want him to remain until I come. And that's his coming here is his coming ultimately to judge uh, Jerusalem, which is the, the chief battle that's being described in the book of Revelation. So therefore the saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. And Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only I want him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, John has figuratively expressed this. This question has to do with the order of death. Peter will die first, then John will remain. Peter will not see the Lord again, but John will see the Lord again. And that anticipates the account that was given of the two disciples coming to the tomb. Because we remember that when they both came to the tomb, what happens is the two of them run to the tomb when they hear the report of the angels that that they were wearing the particular kind of astropy garment, which is what these two disciples remembered from the Transfiguration. Jesus was dressed in astropy. It's a kind of clothing that sparkles like the stars. And they remembered that Jesus was clothed that way. That's why Peter and John look at each other when the women say that angels appear dressed in astropy, because they know the great secret. The secret is the account of the Transfiguration. The other disciples didn't know that, apart from James. So Peter and John look at each other and they run to the tomb to see what's happened when they get that initial report. You know, oftentimes we look at Peter asking about John and who's going to die first in this part of the part of the chapter. And I sometimes think of Jesus's response, among other things that you're pointing out, but I think of Jesus responding to Peter, hey, I'm calling you to be about what I've called you to do. And don't be so concerned about maybe what I've called other people to do and the path that I'm taking them on. Let's be focused, especially for Peter, who was, you know, kind of flighty and responded to emotions and you know rather quickly i kind of see jesus sort of just saying hey let's hunker down focus on what i'm calling you to do and you've got a cup to drink that's going to be enough on your plate for you You're not going to have enough time to worry about somebody else's no i think that's absolutely right i think that's right so and the evidence of that is you says i want him to remain until i come what is that to you you follow me but I think the, the context is we were talking about the order of death, and the word went out that John would remain alive forever, and so he has to correct that by saying, saying went out among the brethren, the disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? So he would remain until he would see Jesus again at Patmos, but that didn't, didn't mean that he wasn't going to uh, have a day of death. The order of it is the question, and Jesus says that's not the appropriate question. You're to follow me, and their times are in God's hands. 
that's been intimated because that became such a big stumbling point, you know, that messed up a lot of people's eschatology when John did die. But in, on the morning of the resurrection, Peter and John run to the tomb, and John, we think, is somewhat younger. So John outruns Peter and arrives at the tomb first and hesitates and does not go in because the tomb is a place of uncleanness, as you know. Peter comes and just barges right in, so Peter enters first. Then after Peter goes into the tomb, then John comes into the tomb. I think that's the context that's being alluded to here. He was not saying that he wouldn't die. It's just he would have his own time, but that Peter would die first. He would enter into the tomb first, and after Peter had gone in, then John would go in himself in the, in the emblematic uh, way of being buried, so that their arrival at the tomb on the day of resurrection um, anticipated the order of their death, and then as an answer to this particular question that had perplexed the early first century disciples about uh, when would Christ return. So I think that that's connected there, which is also emblematic, because that means that entering into the tomb of Jesus is emblematic of our own death. That then means that when Peter and John went into the tomb, when they came out, the door was already open. And I think that speaks to the, you know, like these are connected, I think that speaks to the the promise, I think it's Philadelphia, isn't it, that I've said before you, an open door. It's not has nothing to do with an open door of missions, although they do have that. And, you know, Paul will pray that God will give them an open door. But I think that the open door in that context is the door of the tomb is open. And so uh, if they're faithful unto death, God will give them a crown of life. They'll come forth crowned, having had victory over sin and death. Yeah, that's an excellent word picture. And it's also a reminder that we need to, even in our modern day, we need to focus not so much on the people that we're following that will disappear into the grave, yeah, but yeah. It, it's, a, it's a reminder that this whole thing is focused on the person of Christ, the one that remains, the one that has already exactly. conquered yeah. death. Yeah, and, 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 and finish your work, but be faithful because if you're faithful even unto death, you know, martyrdom is not ruled out of the Christian experience at all. But God has set before us an open door, so death will not imprison us forever. And that's, I think, the point. We're to live as though death has already been defeated, and so we can be courageous. You know, like the the three friends of Daniel, popularly known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but the three Hebrew boys, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they said, we will not bow down to your statute. Our God is able to deliver us, but if he doesn't, we will still not worship your, your idol. And I think that that anticipates the courage of the Christian, or it should, because we have even more revelation to understand that death is not the end for us. So we don't hold on to life with, you know, with that deathly grip. You know, we, we don't seek death, but if God brings it about, then we accept it, knowing that it's merely the door to new life. Yeah, we don't compromise our faith in order to accommodate life, this side of the grave. Yeah, exactly. This uh, is the disciple. John is kind of signing off here. And he says, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that were written. And I think the meaning of this is pretty cool. It's um, clearly not literal, but it's very close because in the, um, in the biblical understanding of things, our lives are books that God is writing. Um, David says that in Psalm 39, um, 
that every day was written in the book of God that would form his uh, nurture. Uh, God, who had created his nature in the embryo, had, had ordained the days of his life to accomplish um, the full writing of his life. And, and I think that the way this is to be understood is that it's speaking about we are the, the books. All of us are the logos, the logoi, I guess, of, of, of Christ. And we express his life ourselves and as we are tracing his image. And so the world itself is filled with, um, every time you go to church, you see a little library of, of books that Christ has written. And you can imagine all the Christians and all the communities of faith all over the world and throughout all of the two millennia now of the Christian era. And so the world itself is being filled with, with Christians whose lives are the books that God has written Ultimately, their name will be written in the Book of Life, which cannot be erased. And so um, when the Day of Resurrection comes, the world will manifest itself, the world and uh, the earth and heaven, as a library filled. Because he says not even the world itself could contain the books. Well, the books are going to, many of them are going to already be uh, stored in heaven. And so, but earth will be filled as well. And so... I, I take that to mean that the word will replicate himself, and that word is our image of Christ. Um, Christ is clearly the scroll in Revelation, and the seven seals that contain the scroll, I think, are the seven wounds of the, the bloody wounds that Christ sustains in order you unseal that book, and that represents his death on our behalf. And so we're going to carry that same image. And the wounds that we sustain are really ordained in order to to show in our bodies, like Paul says, the brand marks of Jesus. And so we're filling the world every time we evangelize. Um, and somebody comes to faith, there's the beginning of a new book that's being written, and it's being written concerning the words of Jesus. His life is being imprinted in that other copy so that the similarities and in differences there are differences but the similarities are the same it's like a fractal idea that we all are reflecting the image of christ who is the word of god and that is the word that's being written over us so it's it's a beautiful chapter uh yeah. honestly that promises uh restoration to those of us who truly repent even if we fall into the deepest chasm of sin um we're only doing what, what Peter himself did. So um, anyway, it's a beautiful chapter. I hope that's, uh, hope that's useful and helpful to you. Yeah. Just a couple chapters ago in the episode uh, where they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, I talked about how Jesus negotiated the release of his disciples. Uh, you know, it's it, my name's on your warrant, in other words, so let these go their way. And yeah. what he was doing, which I don't think we often realize, he was allowing them to be free over that weekend so that all of these things that we've read about could take place, including... Peter's denial, which then uh -huh. then leads to this restoration that we've talked about today, just by reading 
some of your work, I think you would agree that Peter needed this process to come out the other side usable for spreading the gospel because he was he was rather cocky coming coming into this, right? Yes, exactly. Peter is the rock. Now, I think that uh, Peter's confession, of course, becomes a bone of contention between Protestants and Catholics, but I think there's no question that Peter is the chief of the apostles who walked with the Lord. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. That stated when he calls him the rock and the calling at the very beginning of John's gospel. But the end of Revelation is Peter becomes, with the other 11 disciples, once Matthias is incorporated, and you have the full company of 12 again, they become precious stones, not just ordinary rocks. Uh, Cephas is just an ordinary rock. And then its homonym is Cephas, which is, you know, to him who overcomes, I will give his name written on a white stone, a new name. See, that, that fits with, with Peter too in the churches of Revelation. And as I said, I think we were to understand those seven churches largely through Peter, and he becomes the chief apostle, but he doesn't become the only apostle because all the others, the other, the other 11, they too become precious stones. So the foundation of the heavenly city is the teaching of the 12 apostles. But I think the first one is, and I think that's going to be Peter, but he becomes the promise of God that he would become a rock is when it finds its fulfillment, he becomes something even greater. And that is a precious, uh, a rare stone that the brilliance of the jewels, the jewels and the gems of the city is that they refract the light in a different way. So it's the light that brings out their luster and their luminosity and their beauty. And each of them is reflecting Jesus in, in their own unique and different way. But the foundation is not just Peter alone. It's, it's the teaching of the apostles, as I, w- I would take it, that become um, the 12 gates that stand upon the 12 foundations. So it brings together the Jewish city. The gates are named for the patriarchs and the foundations for the apostles of the nations. So all of that is being anticipated, too. And I think it's, it's really quite beautiful. God's promises are always greater in their fulfillment than in their first announcement. So encourage all this is to encourage us in our walk of faith. And Peter, I think, is to encourage us that even when we stumble and fall, uh, the love of God has gone before us. The Lord has prayed for us. And that when we're restored, we're to encourage the brethren, which was part of the calling of Peter that he accomplished because Christ had prayed for him. So when even when we fall, Christ is praying for us, and his love has gone before us. And that's the hope that we have, that we will accomplish our good purpose. And all that is written about us that brings us closer to conformity to Christ will be accomplished in our own lives. Yeah, I think the picture that you laid out there at the end of you know the books being written, and in reality, and rather poetically too, those books are the people that are attached to Christ through faith. I think in watching Peter being restored and knowing that that also happens today with each individual, that we are restored when we fall, I think it it gives a little more emphasis than maybe we do today on telling our own story with Christ and how it's our story as well that is meshed in with the work of God that we see in the Gospels. And so, you know, when I'm in like a Sunday school class, I often am so eager to get to the study of the scriptures and let's not take too much time to share what's going on in our lives, but really sharing what's going on in our lives is part of that same story. 
that Christ himself is writing. Yeah, continually. Yeah. So we, we don't give it the same authority and dignity as the inspired scriptures themselves, but nonetheless, it is the Logos that is writing our story. And yeah. there are patterns, and there, is, there are places of, that for testimony, we're supposed to confess our sins to one another, and, and that means then we confess the concomitant truth is how the Lord has shown us grace and mercy in spite of our sin. The redeemed of the Lord are told by the psalmist to say so. Just simply explain how, how is it that you have been restored. And I think we're all enriched when people are honest and do that. It encourages the whole community not, not to fear to be exposed, but to expose ourselves in the, in the, the manner of the, remember the woman at the well, she goes into the city. She was ashamed to go with the women at the hour of when women normally went to the well. But when she meets Jesus, she goes back into the city and tells, or draws attention to everything she'd ever done. You know, here's a man who told me all the things that I've ever done, and those were shameful to her, but her shame has become her testimony. So we would be much enriched if we had the community and the confidence in the community to share our darker moments, because that would give greater contrast to the light that Jesus has shown us, because he restores all of us, just like he'd restored Peter. And tenderness and, you know, carrying the ewes, in his own bosom, because he is the true, truly the good shepherd. So that's the pattern that we are called to emulate. It's a beautiful picture. I've shared often that uh, the thing I appreciate about you most and what I loved about sitting under your teaching uh, in my doctoral process was just the, your ability to literarily bring about the poetry that the Bible brings out that often escapes us, that we're not taught to read it that way. And I think we've seen very good examples of that as you've just walked through John chapter 21. So I appreciate your time today. Well, it's a joy to be with you, Craig, and God bless you and your podcast and all the people who, who are favored to hear your words and your teaching. So I know you'll be very faithful and you're very gifted yourself. So it'll be, uh, right. be a, a blessing to many, I'm sure. I appreciate those kind words. Thanks again for coming by, and we really appreciate uh, you being with us today. It's a joy to be with you, Greg. God bless. Well, that's all I've got for today, and that's officially the end of the Book of John. A few years ago, Dr. Gage taught through the Book of John at his church, that audio, along with studies on Isaiah, Luke, and Acts, are available at donlaw.com. I'll put a link in the show notes for those who are interested. So in real time, it's the middle of December 2021, and I'm preparing a special Advent series to finish out the year. So in a few days, I'll be releasing daily short episodes leading up to Christmas. And you might wonder, what's the topic? Well... <laughs> While our modern presentation of the nativity is commonplace, what does that look like? It's, you know, Joseph and Mary with baby Jesus in a barn, maybe surrounded by animals and shepherds and three kings holding small gift boxes. Maybe there's even an angel sitting up on the roof. This scene is very commonplace and comfortable, but there are likely some aspects of the advent that you think of as truth that really couldn't be further from it. In this series of shorts that I'm calling Rethinking Advent, 
I'll help clean up some of the stuff in the stable and make you want to rearrange the cast of characters in every lawn nativity set that you see this Christmas season. This series of shorts will be perfect for those introverts that don't know what to say at those big holiday family gatherings. Each episode is a built-in discussion starter to use with even the most distant of relatives. Needless to say, I'm excited about the upcoming series. So thanks again for listening, and please take some time to rate, review, and recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Mm -hmm.